my playback. And now, live, real red meat radio. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly, provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Never apologize. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. My memory is so bad I let you speak. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. And does it sometimes seem that the United States government is working on everybody's behalf except yours and mine? And I'm going to give you several examples, most recently from the United States Senate where about 22 Republicans joined in with the Democrat Party and voted for a bill. It provides $93.5 billion for Ukraine, for Israel, and Taiwan. In other words, Republican senators who voted, while we have not done anything to change the situation on America's southern border, they want to make sure that the Borders of Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan are well protected with American taxpayer dollars. And if that makes sense to you, I'd be glad to hear the naysayer call. So welcome to the program. We call it the best conversation and talk journalism. And it's right here every single day at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you happen to be a naysayer, 866-439-5277. And we'll put you right to the head of the line. I mean, this is absolute insanity. Here's the way Gateway Pundit covered it today. The Senate early today passed a massive $95.5 billion aid package for Israel, Taiwan, Ukraine. No border funding at all because what? Americans are asleep? We know this is a problem. And there is one party that is in charge of enforcing America's borders, and that's the federal government. We've got a commander-in-chief in Joe Biden. I It pains me to call him a commander-in-chief. But he's decided to just open the floodgates and let the invasion go on. In fact, the estimate, get this, the number of Chinese nationals, most of them young fighting-age males, who crossed illegally into America just yesterday is 269. And the Border Patrol says that so far, in fiscal year 24, which began October 1, it ends September 31, their fiscal year runs off from the calendar year, 20,000 people from China, most of them young males of some females, almost none of them with families. So it makes you wonder what's going on. You've got a federal government that's not paying attention. You've got a president who's clearly so checked out and refuses to take a cognitive test. But I think the Democrats have other plans for Joe Biden. They're going to have to figure out what to do with a guy who clearly isn't even likely to make it mentally to November. And are they really going to stick with him as their nominee when all the alternatives to Joe Biden are worse? Kamala Harris, Gavin Newsom. I mean, all of those are worse. But in the meantime, we have a government that's supposed to be doing its job. And they're passing gigantic foreign aid packages for other countries while our own country is being invaded. You know what? I care a whole lot less about the invasion of Ukraine, which Joe Biden both invited, aided, and abetted in many ways, uh, than I do about the invasion of this country. This is absolutely outrageous. Conservatives did an all-night filibuster. Rand Paul stood his ground, the Republican from Kentucky. It ended about 5 o'clock in the morning, Washington, D.C. time. The Senate found the bill so urgent 
that they invoked cloture on Super Bowl Sunday by a 67 to 27 vote. Now, they might have done it on Super Bowl Sunday because they thought nobody else is paying attention to what we're doing. And then you had, I said 22, I believe it was 18 GOP members. It might have ended up in the final vote at 22. But guess what? $60 billion for Ukraine, which is going exactly nowhere this year. The Pentagon has already said, don't expect any progress at all. We're just going to shovel money in till the cows come home. $14 billion for Israel. And the other money goes to so-called humanitarian assistance for the terrorists in Gaza and the West Bank, along with... Uh, Chinese aggression in the Indo-Pacific defending Taiwan, all of this. Well, last night the number went to 22 that voted to pass the bill. Two Democrats, two Democrats, Jeff Merkley and Peter Welch, Democrat of Vermont and Democrat from Oregon, and Bernie Sanders, the socialist from Vermont, voted to reject the bill. But other than that, the Democrats were all on the party line, and 22 Republicans joined that parade and decided to sell out America. So they've told us we don't care what happens on American southern border. We care about Ukraine, Taiwan, Israel, and all those other priorities that, as far as I'm concerned, pale by comparison to the concern of real Americans about our real border. And you know who's coming into the country. We've got convicted criminals, including crimes like rape and murder. We've got child traffickers. We've got drug dealers who are coming in. We've got people on the terrorist watch list and some identified terrorists who are coming across the border illegally. And those are the ones we've actually caught or had some encounter with the Border Patrol. In fact, in one case, and we detailed it for you a couple of weeks ago, they had a guy who came in who was on the terrorist watch list, only they didn't figure that out before they let him go. They then had to chase him around from March of last year until January of this year before they finally located him here on American soil. This is what we mean by an invasion. Now, I know there are people who don't like me using that term. I don't care. I care about this country. We've got a national security problem so bad that even Joe Biden's FBI says that we have created our own national security nightmare by opening up that border so much so that criminals and terrorists and contraband and trafficked children and trafficked adults are all coming across that border. Glad to be with you on a Tuesday. There are some serious things to talk about. If you want to join the conversation, it's 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Now, you've got a bizarre race for the United States Senate in California. And why is that relevant elsewhere? Well, one of the issues that came up during one of the debates, there is one Republican on the stage. you got the three Democrat nitwits, including Representative Barbara Lee of California, Adam Shifty Schiff of California, and Katie Porter. But Barbara Lee stands up and is asked by a reporter who apparently decided not to ask a follow-up question. I thought that was kind of pathetic. But she was asked, what about this idea of yours for a $50 minimum wage? And she proceeds to explain, well, you know, to be able to live in the San Francisco Bay Area, a family of four needs a minimum, a minimum of $127,000 a year. And that isn't even going to be living high on the hog. So she says the only way to fix that 
is to raise the minimum wage, and I assume she's talking about the big cities of California. I mean, if you're in Chico and you're making 50 bucks an hour to flip hamburgers or fry chicken, uh, well, I don't know of a chicken shack that's going to survive if they're paying $100,000 a year in annual salary to the people for fast food or convenience stores or anything else. This is going to absolutely, if they pass this, even if they limit it only to the big cities, you are going to wipe out small business. And the other thing you're going to do, whether you like it or not, is you're going to push a lot of businesses to fully automate their operations. I mean, you and I have both seen the videos that fast food operations have already developed to have hamburger-making machines. And somebody who orders via a pad or a kiosk, you punch in your own order, a machine makes your burger and fries, puts it in a sack, and you walk out. Now, you tell me, if you're running a fast food operation or any other kind of small business, and you have to pay $100,000 a year to the least capable person on your staff, are you going to last very long? Or are you going to automate the heck out of your operation? It is a Tuesday. It's the best conversation in talk journalism. It's honestly provocative talk for America. It's the Lars Larson Show. Always ask Lars if he wants to run for public office, like president. Do you know how much power I'd have to give up to be president? This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to take your calls. And always look forward to talking to our friend Frank Gaffney, the founder of the Center for Security Policy, author of the number one best-selling book on Amazon in its category, The Indictment prosecuting the Chinese Communist Party and friends for crimes against America, China, and the world. Frank, how are you? Well, in this best of all possible worlds, Lars, I guess I'm muddling through as best I can. That's what I'm doing. Uh, I just uh, I, I look. I, I just shared with my audience some of these numbers. 269 Chinese nationals illegally crossed our border just yesterday, 20,000 since October 1. This is this is an invasion, and we have no idea what the real meaning of all this is, do we? Oh, I think we do, honestly, Lars. Uh, you know, the vast majority of them are unaccompanied military-aged men. Um, a fair number of them are very fit, uh, sporting military haircuts. Um, uh, they don't look you in the eye. They seem to be moving in groups. They seem to be carrying pretty much the same kits. Um, this is an invasion in the very literal sense of the word. These are People's Liberation Army personnel. And we can speculate on exactly what their missions may be, but uh, it's not good, that's for sure. This isn't about economic you know, empowerment and better life and all the rest of it, making our country better. This is, I fear, about taking the country down. And this was the subject of a really important webinar, which I would commend to all of your listeners. It's available for free at presentdangerchina.org. And its title was Xi's Pearl Harbor. It's not just the plan. It's what they're acting on. And the reality is, I think, among many other, again, indicators of what's afoot here, uh, the presence of these forces, the 
the, the increased number of them coming in. And get this, Lars, the fact the Daily Caller tumbled to about a month ago that the Biden administration has actually streamlined their entry into the United States. Previously, they'd been asked 40 questions to try to suss out, you know, who are these guys? What is their real background and, and purpose? It's down to five questions now. And they're pretty much perfunctory, and everybody understands and memorizes the uh, the answers, and then they just get, get waved right on through. So the numbers are shocking, um, but so is the obvious purpose, which is to do us harm. And, you know, don't take my word for it. We had 10 senior former executives of the FBI. We had Christopher Wray. We've had uh, uh, members of Congress and others all warning that uh, this is teeing up to be an attack inside our country. Probably not just one, but many, many, many. By the way, what I've been able to find out myself in the last couple of weeks, and you double check me on this if I'm wrong, is that many of these people are flying the same route. They fly to Ecuador from China mm -hmm. or, or from some other connection point, you know, where they get out of China, then fly from that connection point to Ecuador, and then somehow make their ways up, what, whether they're flying to Mexico City from Ecuador or just coming up through the Darien Gap. They're coming up into our country, and they're coming up, as you said, in these large numbers. They appear to be in good shape, and, uh, and the Chinese like to play the long game, don't they? So you might think, well, yeah. once they're here, they'll act. Well, not necessarily. Maybe once they're here, they reconstitute themselves as the, the battalions that they literally are. Because I've had mm -hmm. other reports, and it's tough to prove a negative, but there are people saying, I work in the you know, shelters with some of the homeless and, and some of the, the so-called refugees who are, t who are ending up co-locating in some of these shelters. And they say, I'm not seeing any Chinese nationals. Where are they going? Do we know? Mm -hmm. I think they're going into uh, uh, higher-grade hotels and uh, probably safe houses. Uh, in fact, there's a really important um, uh, video on the web at the moment. Uh, Lars, your listeners may have heard about it already. I hope you've uh, taken a look at it. Um, it's the butler of, uh, excuse me, the, the sheriff of Butler County, Ohio, whose name is Richard Jones, very formidable guy. Um, and he had just come from a National Sheriff's Association meeting, I believe, in Washington last week. And he was being told by Christopher Wray, the director of the FBI and others, you know, about this threat. And, um, and he was warning about, you know, both cyber and physical attacks. He's training people in his own community to try to contend with it because he said the feds aren't going to do this uh, and in fact they're part of the problem and so uh, where exactly they are i don't know but he said he's been told there are chinese safe houses in every state of the union and that sounds right to me but the other piece of this lars and i, I think we've talked about it before but it bears mentioning in this context uh, out in reedley california as you know they're tumbled upon by grace of god frankly, um, a bio lab that the Chinese Communist Party had established in that town, uh, not too far from Fresno, and more to the point, not too far from one of our key uh, naval aviation facilities uh, in um, the center of California. And this uh, lab had, um, we're told, some 20 deadly pathogens in it, including a freezer yep. that had on the outside of it a sign saying Ebola. This is the kind of thing that uh, the select committee in the House on the Chinese Communist Party believes there are probably more of them out there. And if these soldiers 
uh, special operators maybe, um, marry up with those kinds of deadly diseases. Uh, the pandemic that we saw before with COVID uh, will be the day at the beach, literally. And that's what's so worrying about this. And Lars, what's amazing is uh, there doesn't seem to be any interest on the part of the FBI or the Centers for Disease Control in the Reedley lab, let alone finding any others, or finding out where have these guys gone. To, to, to answer your question, uh, they should know, and they should be getting them out as these uh, former and, FBI And CDC was alerted to all this. They came in, EPA came in, and all these federal agencies I mean, in some cases, we're told that they destroyed some of the things they found at that lab that was owned by a Chinese national, didn't they? Well, it, it took them four months to get to that lab. And then apparently uh, the CDC took one look at what the contents of that freezer with Ebola on the sign on the outside, and none of them were marked. And they said, well, we don't need to sample them. And not only that, then they turned over the job of destroying all this stuff, the evidence, if you will, to the EPA, as you say. And guys in shirt sleeves were moving all that stuff out of this lab and burning it. And I got to say, I wonder if that's really the appropriate way to handle this stuff. The whole thing just stinks to high heavens. And uh, again, if there's more of these places around the United States, we're in serious trouble. Hey, I, I want to share something with you, Frank, because I just got this word right before you and I began talking today. Uh, <clears throat> does the name Chuck Mahoney ring any bells for you? No. My, maybe not. He's a man I I had the great fortune to meet at a Marine Corps birthday. I'm not, I wasn't in the Marine Corps, but I was invited several times to speak at their uh, birthday celebration mm -hmm. on November 10. And Sergeant Chuck Mahoney, uh, I just found out literally minutes ago, passed away yesterday. And he was the, the man who held the Marine Corps record, I think still holds it today, for the greatest number of, of kills and probable kills, and all of it happening during 16 months during Vietnam. 103 wow. confirmed kills, 216 probable kills, total number more than 300, if you count both mm -hmm. confirmed and probable. And he was a great mm -hmm. hero, and I will tell you, he lived just a couple of hundred miles from where, where I live. And I had the opportunity to meet him because I walked up to him and I looked at his name tag and I said, you're Chuck Mawinney. And he and, and he, I said, Sergeant, it's a pleasure to meet you. This is the man, the United States Marine, who I think still holds the record for the greatest number of, of sniper kills. He saved a lot of lives and uh, he passed he away, passed away yesterday. Tomorrow would have been the uh, the day that would have marked the uh, it was Valentine's Day in Vietnam. And he took out 16 uh, enemy soldiers with headshots mm -hmm. in a single day in 1969. Wow. He was a, yeah, he, he uh, went to Marine Corps sniper school, I believe, at Camp Pendleton. And, uh, it was, mm -hmm. and, and yet, you know, in his latter years, he, uh, he lived quietly in a small town. And when reporters went out to interview him and his neighbors, his neighbors didn't even know he'd served in the military, many of them. Okay. Uh, he he wow. wasn't a guy who went around and tooted his own horn. As Chuck Winnie, yeah, Sergeant of the United modest. States Marine Corps and a great hero. Frank, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Back in a moment. You're gl I'm glad to be with you. You got the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show.
Donald Trump with a warning to Hamas at the Republican Jewish Coalition Conference. If you spill a drop of American blood, we will spill a gallon of yours. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a Tuesday. It's honestly provocative talk for America, and your calls are welcome. I got a few things I got to tell you about, though, very quickly. Texas right now is on track to build more of Donald Trump's famous and fabulous border wall than the former president's own administration had managed to put up in the state. Well, largely because the Republican Congress for two years did absolutely nothing to help Trump on that score. But Governor Greg Abbott announced uh, late last week, Texas is the first and only state in the history of the United States to build its own border wall. Abbott announced that during a press conference in where else? Shelby Park in Eagle Pass, Texas, which has been ground zero for the fight, believe it or not, that has gone on, not a physical fight, but a rhetorical and a court fight between the federal government of Joe Biden that wants to open the border wide open and the state of Texas, which has said we have a right to protect our own state, rights, uh, states have a right of self-defense, and most of that has centered on Shelby Park, And in fact, uh, you can imagine all the places in Texas where illegal aliens simply pour into that state. And then New Yorkers and Bostonians and Chicagoans, they all get very upset. What? He's sending all those illegals up here? Well, we declared ourselves a sanctuary, but we don't want them up here. We thought they were going to go somewhere else in America. All these liberal blue cities and states that have been so, they, they love to talk the talk. Why, we welcome everyone. Well, until Joe Biden threw the, go- the borders open, no, we don't welcome those people. Make them live somewhere else. In fact, last night on the show, I played you that soundbite from a Boston City Councilwoman who literally said that Boston had declared itself a sanctuary city, but now Boston has too many illegal aliens. I guess there is such a thing as too much sanctuary. So now she's saying, well, the neighboring cities around Boston, they need to take in their share of these illegal aliens. No, they don't. You're the sanctuary city. You get them. And the same goes for New York City. A public university in Indianapolis has now canceled a scheduled sexually explicit event after online backlash. Indiana University, Purdue, uh, canceled the upcoming introduction to bondage workshop for students that was being led, believe it or not, by a so-called bondage instructor and reported author of rape erotica that was supposed to have happened today. Well, at least they canceled it at long last. An illegal with uh, five deportations, so five times tossed out of America, has now been arrested in Texas for killing a 10-year-old boy. Rogelio Ortiz is a Mexican national. He hit the kid while the kid was crossing the street, and then he fled, so it was hit and run. The boy was simply walking home from school. On that note, glad to have you with me. If you want to jump into the conversation, it's right here at 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers, you always go right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And a shout-out to our friends at our station in San Antonio, Texas, KTSA, where they provide great talk radio all day at AM 550. And you can find my show there Monday through Friday. Now, a couple of other things I want to bring up to you. Number one. Yet another report that debunks the claim by Joe Biden that inflation is falling. It is not falling. We keep explaining this to people. Joe Biden managed to push inflation in uh, 2022 to stratospheric levels. And since then, he won't let it quit. Look how much I've brought it down from 9%. 
Yeah, you got it all the way down to 3.1% year over year. The problem is that when you look at all the prices of the things that Americans care about the most, 17.9% increase. Electricity up 28.6%. Food prices up 21%. Rent, on average, I know it's worse in some areas, up 19.4%. And I'd point out to you that uh, in the inflation in home mortgage rates is double. It's a 100% increase. The day that Joe Biden took office, the home mortgage 30-year rate was 2.7%. Do you think we'll ever see that again? And when you take a look at the wages that Americans make, and then you factor in the increases, the, the raises they've received in the last three years, and then you factor in the inflation, you're actually making 2% less than you were three years ago. You've made no progress at all. Real wages are lower than when Joe Biden took office and real average weekly earnings have dropped by three-tenths of a percent, a third of a percent just last month. Consider that. To your calls. Let's go to James in Alabama. Hey, James, thanks for listening. Glad to have you with me. What's on your mind? Uh, nothing much, Lars. I uh, just wanted to see what your thoughts were on the Tucker Carlson interview with Putin. Um, yeah, it was a rather lengthy uh, history lesson. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I just figured I'd see what your thoughts were well, on it. Uh, n- number one, I've told people that I would pursue interviews, too. And I know there are people who say, well, if you interviewed the guy, you must be on his side. I mean, there are a bunch of li- crazy liberals that say Tucker Carlson is siding with Putin. I never thought of it that way when I interviewed serial killers or former office holders or presidents or anything else. I didn't think I was on their side or not on their side. I'm there to ask them questions. Sometimes the questions and the answers may benefit them, sometimes not. And you're right. Putin spent, what was it, 45 minutes answering the first question about the why of the Ukraine invasion by going on a history lesson that I think went back to the year 800 or so. Um, so right. he was filling the air with words a bit. I understand there are times people ask me a question and I say, well, I got to give you the background so you understand, but not 45 minutes worth, right? Yeah, I think he was kind of trying to put context into it a little bit. Um, but I guess m- my takeaway from it, um, would be is he was just maintaining the sovereignty of his country, which I'm totally for. I'm not for Russia. I'm not for any. I'm not for Ukraine. Not for Russia. No, I'm for America first. Um, you and, and me both. My thing is is you know pretty much what he was getting at is this NATO. You know, like and all the agreements that that they've had, and you know. Hey, you know, our, and I don't know if you believe that or as far they, as they've been adding lab. to NATO and that is a threat the way Putin perceives it. And I don't know that he's wrong in his perception is that the West is threatening Russia by saying we're going to keep expanding NATO and we've got you surrounded and then we're going to start putting pressure on you. And, uh, right. and the fact is, is that would you take that as a threat? I, I know I know how America looked at it when the old Soviet Union decided it was going to put missiles in Cuba, and we said, not in our hemisphere, no way, it ain't going to happen, and we went toe-to-toe with them for a time because of that. James, thanks for the call. I got a naysayer. Tim, what do you and I disagree about? I don't want to hit the brake without you stating that. What, what do we disagree about? Yeah, Lars, I would disagree that Biden is the main reason that inflation has gone rampant in America. Um, You could actually pinpoint a lot more fingers back at Trump for uh, inflation being where it is today. Give Give me the best indication that Donald Trump 
caused the inflation that did, that held off until six months into Joe Biden's term? Sure. There's two main reasons, and inflation is kind of a lagging indicator. But uh, so remember in 2019, interest rates, uh, Trump was indicating to Powell to slash interest rates at a time that made no sense. In 2019, Trump if you recall, was saying, slash the rate, slash the rate. Okay, but Tim, Both you're going to burn all your daylight and not get to the point. How does asking for a slash in interest rates drive inflation? The way I look at it, Joe Biden got... Because when, Go ahead. because when we actually needed interest rates to be slashed, such as, hey, a global pandemic, everybody's getting uh, locked into their own homes, and we need that stimulation, rates were already at such a uh, a historic low yeah but again how does how does cheaper uh, you know you could say cheaper money would flood the system but wasn't what hold on let me ask because we're going to run out of time otherwise why shouldn't i believe that it was because joe biden decided to artificially constrain our energy supply and 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 dump trillions of dollars into the u.s economy that's the driver of inflation tell me why it's not well first of all trump passed the trillion dollar budget bill that he got and Powell was printing money before Biden took office. Okay. Thank you, Tim. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Tuesday. If you want to jump into the best conversation and talk journalism, it's right here at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Some ways, I wish we'd held over our naysayer because he was trying to make an argument that somehow if Donald Trump advocated for lower interest rates in 2019. Now, I understand that's not ancient history, but go back to 2019. Was the economy clocking along pretty good? Yeah, I'd say so. It was a pretty hot economy. And what do you do during a hot economy? Well, I guess you try to keep building it, unless you're the Federal Reserve, in which case <laughs> you try to kill it. I mean, the Fed always seems to be late to the game. When the economy is slow, they put on the gas too slowly. When the economy is hot, they put on the brakes too late. They are a pseudo-government, pseudo-private organization that I don't think anybody truly understands, maybe even not the people who work within it. It is a weird animal, and in a lot of I just wish we could get rid of the Fed and let the private sector, let true private sector players, uh, you know, take up the slack. And I think that would happen. Instead, we've got folks who always decide, well, the economy's too hot. Let's cool it down, which hurts some people. Uh, then it's too slow, and we need to speed it up. And usually their actions end up hurting people. But the argument that somehow, if Donald Trump was arguing for lower interest rates in 2019, then in 2020, the first year of the pandemic, although officially it got started in China in late 2019, then we didn't see the inflation because the economy got shut down. But then once the election was over, Joe Biden, the fraud president of America, decides that he's going to jump in and bring the economy back. He didn't do much of anything at all. He mostly just allowed the economy to do what it does best. But let me go to Doug first. Doug, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. Did you understand the naysayers' point that Donald Trump and his actions in 2019 were responsible for the inflation that began during the Biden administration six months into it after a number of things that Biden had done that pushed inflation? 
and the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. Did you understand that this is Trump's fault and not Joe Biden's fault? No, he's uh, Lars, thank you for taking my call. I've always sure. wanted to call into your show and talk to you, but he's 100% wrong. And the company I work for, which is the largest truck manufacturer, um, we had multiple surcharges, mainly because energy costs went up. And all of the suppliers we buy parts from, plastic parts, rubber parts, they've all had costs go up. So if you go back and look at the price of a barrel of oil in 2020, when we were energy deficient, it was around $26 a barrel. And OPEC at that time, because the U.S. was so low, was selling oil at $65 a barrel. Soon as we stopped producing and started buying from OPEC and others, it shot the price through the roof. I mean, yep. we saw $100, $120 a barrel for a period, and that shot up the cost of everything that uses petroleum. And and we had to pass it on. Everybody else had to pass it on. And when you consider 70 to 80% of everything you buy is hauled by truck, um, you're going to see all their costs go up. So it's 100%. I'd say the largest portion is all due to the energy costs. I, I, would, agree, I would agree with you, but there's one other thing that has to go with it, Doug. And one of my favorite books, I'm tempted to go buy about a 100 of them and give them away as prizes on the show or give them away as a giveaway on the show, is The Mouse That Roared. And it's a great little fiction book. They made it into a movie. And the, the gist of it is this little company, a country in Europe, tiny little nothing country, uh, is in money trouble. So they say, I know what we'll do. We'll declare war on the United States. And all the, you know, the king and his advisors say, let's do this. Why? Because we'll declare war and then we'll quickly sue for peace. Because immediately after a war, the United States always pours money into a country. It doesn't matter if it's Western Europe or, uh, you know, other places. We'll pour money in. And the, the, then they found out the basic economics lesson. If you have the same amount of goods but more dollars floating around in the economy, the dollar figure that all those goods are sold for goes up. That's Econ 101. So when Joe Biden has a supply chain crisis, when he has a manufacturing crisis, and, uh, and then he decides, let's just pump a bunch of dollars into the economy, as though pumping dollars causes more goods to be produced. It doesn't. So what happens is, where there was $10 chasing something around in the economy, now there's 20 So the price of the good goes to $20. Not because the good, you know, is, is, whatever it is you're selling, parts, hamburgers, apples, whatever it is, more money is chasing the same amount of goods. Econ 101 says the price goes up. And, and, and without, usually when the price of something goes up, a lot of people want to start producing it. They say, hey, uh, they're buying lots of plywood. Let's make more plywood. And, uh, and, and except we apparently can't do that either. So the end result is the price of everything goes up, wages can't keep up, and people get crushed. And government makes out like a bandit. Right? Yep. Yep. I, I agree. And it sounds like a very interesting book to read. Um, I will say that during that time period, it, and, and there's nothing any president can do that is like a light switch where I make changes and it's immediate. So you've got to give it time. But if you take a look at people's 401ks, they were at the highest rate. When you take a look at 
what Trump did uh, for inflation numbers, he actually had it at one of the lowest numbers in 60 years. I think it was one-seven the day Joe took the oath. Yeah, people were making more money. We got some of the biggest raises we'd ever seen, and the costs were down. So the average person did better. And then take a look at your retirement accounts. They were all really stable and good at that time. So, yeah, I'm... I totally disagree with that that naysayer caller. I don't think they understand basic economics and what you can do by outsourcing energy and paying two to three times more of the cost and then expect nothing to go up. No, and in fact, when you're right when you say, well, he can't just flip a switch and have things happen immediately, but you can send signals immediately. So when Joe Biden walks into office and famously on day one, uh, kills the Keystone XL pipeline, kills thousands of jobs, says we're sending a message that America's moving away from oil. Even that ridiculous comment he made during the State of the Union, where he said, why in 10 years, America won't be using oil at all, which of course is insane, because only a, 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 about a third, I think, of all the oil we consume goes for transportation. The rest of it goes for fertilizer, plastics, every other thing that oil goes into. And the end result of that is, if you send a message to the markets, say, you know, to the financial markets, the people who, you know, loan money to small companies to drill holes and find oil, if you cancel federal leases, you're sending a giant message. America is going to produce less oil than it could, and the marketplace listens to that, and they react to it. Doug, thanks for the call. Glad to get your calls, too, and your emails. Talk at LarsLarson.com, and you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Okay, it's a nice ride. It's going to happen. Stand by playback. And now, Lars. Real Red Meat Radio. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Never apologize for being patriotic. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. My memory is so bad I let you speak. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and your emails. There's a lot to talk about, too. In Chicago, the mayor of that city has decided to hand out $18 million to help out local business, but only the businesses owned by, as he describes them, black and brown owners. So in other words, he wants to help out the businesses, but he's going to do it on a racist basis. Is it maybe time for some white business owners in Chicago and maybe even Asian business owners in Chicago to stand up and object loudly to what's something that looks like complete illegal to hand out money from a government based on people's race? Joe Biden has decided he's not going to take a cognitive test. And I'd suggest to you, Do you remember back in 2018 when about 70 doctors signed a letter saying that Donald Trump, he's such a crazy man, you should give him a cognitive test and see if he's still got it together upstairs between his ears. And they're not out there doing that for Joe Biden, even though I think you don't have to be a medical doctor to understand that Joe Biden has some problems right now. An elderly man with a poor memory, as his own Department of Justice described him in excusing his crimes. But 
I want to start by talking to a, a William Cooper, who's the author most recently of a book called How America Works and Why It Doesn't. Mr. Cooper, welcome to the program. How are you? I'm doing great, Lars. Thanks for having me. Tell me about this book, because it was so intriguing when I saw it. I told my producer, I said, we got to talk to this guy. What What are you suggesting about what America, what, do, what does work for America and sometimes why it doesn't? Well, I think the essential traditions of the country work really well and have over time and have proven to in any historical sense. The American experiment has been a long-term success. What's not working is right now the extent of over-polarization in the country is causing people to lose sight of those essential traditions. And I think that's where a lot of our errors are coming from. Yeah, but except that I hear people talk about polarization and they say this is a bad thing. Well, I don't know. I like to have choices that I can make. If I get a choice between, you know, two things that are so alike, you know, that, that, that you almost can't tell the difference, that's not much of a choice, is it? So is polarization necessarily bad? And can you tell me, tell me an issue on which we could become unpolarized, like, I don't know. Abortion's usually the go-to, but that one's very polar by its very nature. Uh, Ukraine might be one of those. Is there a halfway point somewhere between sending tens of billions of dollars into a conflict on the other side of the planet that has no American national security concern in it and not sending tens of billions of dollars? Give me an example of something where you think we are polarized and we could solve it. Well, those are good points. Let me address the first one Sure. Uh, initially. The way I define polarization is not everybody thinks the same thing and everybody wants the same policy or the same result. It's good to have differences. You're exactly right. You want robust debate in society, in the public square. The polarization that I'm concerned about is when the differences are not rooted in substantive policy analysis or rational thinking, but just anger and vitriol and casting aside the actual analysis that would come if, if a debate, an honest debate between two opposing views were to take place. Well, give me That's an example of one I'm... of those that, that is not about the issue, but is only about anger. Because I'd be hard-pressed to name one, so I'd like you to tell me one. Well, I, I think your example of abortion is actually a good one. I think it's very rare to find people who are not on one extreme or the other and who are willing to actually sift through all the various ways you could approach that policy question and try to come up with a balanced approach. What you find instead is one side screaming, you know, it's a woman's right to choose, another side screaming uh, um, pro-life, and you don't actually sit down and try to see if there might be some room for compromise. And I think that's common. I think it's very common that you don't in, in America today, actually try to come to the right decision, there's a, a zealotry coming from both sides that's much more prevalent. See, and, and that's one I'd have a tough time with because I don't scream about abortion. I say I'm not in favor of killing babies. Other people are in favor of killing babies. I, f I find the one side, the killing babies side, to be the extreme side. I would think that most people would say, no, let's not kill babies. Let's give them life. And if they need to be adopted, adopt them out. If they need to be cared for some other way, care for them that way. But let's not kill them. So where's the compromise point that's halfway between let's kill babies for any reason under any circumstances and let's make the taxpayers pay for it. And the other side that says, let's not kill babies. Is there a halfway point on that one? Because I don't see it. Well, 
I certainly don't think you need to characterize it as killing babies or not killing babies. There is nuance. There's nuance here. You could have a pregnancy that arose under very challenging circumstances. Three percent. Three percent of them. I'll give you I'll give you that one for argument's sake. The margins should matter and the margins should be addressed. You can. okay. let's take that three percent. Even Reagan was willing to allow abortion in the case of incest, rape and to save the life of the mother. That's two to three percent by the best estimates. Now, what about the other 97 percent where you say this baby's inconvenient? We've got to get rid of it. Well, the fact that you're willing to account for those things is a good thing. And I, I applaud that. And anybody on either side who swats those exceptions or those nuances aside is making a mistake. Well, how about this one? Let's let's try this one. Very polarizing today. Joe Biden's allowed the invasion of 10 million people in the last three years entering our country in complete and total violation of the law. Uh, I'm against that. Uh, there are people who want America to be overrun by invading illegal aliens, including a lot of fighting age males. Where's the halfway point on that one? Was it the one in James Langford's bill in which he said, well, there are 10,000 people a day coming in now. Why don't we cut it to five and call it good? To which Republicans said, forget it. We're not doing it. I'm not advocating for halfway points. I'm advocating for taking all of the information that's relevant and factoring it into your thinking. And the border is a very good example of how that often doesn't happen. Of course it's true that we should enforce our laws. Of course it's true that we should have sound borders and we should have rational policy. But it's also true that there's a lot of challenges. For example, there are young people in this country who were born here who are doing very well and contributing to society. And just deporting all of them in one fell swoop, in my view, wouldn't be a fair or rational Why not? measure. Why not? When they leave this country with 12 years of education that cost around $200,000, a knowledge of usually their native language plus uh, uh, English as well, sounds like when they go back home because they're not here legally, they'll be in pretty good shape, won't they? Who's I it unfair to? Good, I think they'll be in good shape, but I think they contribute to our society here. And we want to keep good people here who arrived through no control of their own to be citizens here, but without lawful status. I don't think we should just have a complete and utter wholesale removal of lots of really talented contributing people. We should. William, I'm going to have to cut it off at that point. That's William Cooper. His new book is called How America Works and Why It Doesn't. Mr. Cooper, thanks for the time. Back in a moment, you've got the Lars Larson Show. Another strong take from President Biden on AI and the weather. Helping web tech, the web, web, the web telescope. My God, what is this? This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And guys, a little reminder tomorrow, Valentine's Day. If you've forgotten, it's probably too late to make good. Although maybe you can pick up some gas station flowers or something like that. 
But there's something rather disturbing that's going on in America. Over the last 50 years, the marriage rate in the U.S. has dropped by almost 60%. And one young lady is suggesting maybe, maybe it's just Hollywood and the way it portrays real love. And that's Melissa Henson, who joins me now, Vice President of the Parents Television and Media Council. Melissa, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me on. So is it, I mean, I'm not going to pin the entire blame on Hollywood, although they probably deserve blame for a lot of things that have gone <laughs> wrong. But but tell me this. Yeah, I mean, I I used to be an inveterate movie buff, both my wife and I. We just don't watch as many movies. We got, we got too many books to read and, and things like that. But tell me, uh, do you think that there's a case to be made that the way that Hollywood and entertainment media depicts uh, romantic love is partly to blame for these numbers? I think so. Um, if, if you look at we, the Parents Television Council, we did a study in 2008 where we looked at how marriage was portrayed on television. And what we were finding was that um, extramarital relationships or adulterous relationships or premarital relationships uh, far outnumbered <laughs> depictions of love, sex, and romance within the context of marriage. And to the extent that, you know, marital relationships were shown on TV at all, they were mostly shown in a negative light. So it was, you know, sort of the <laughs> Al Bundy kind of, uh, you know, oh, marriage God. is a burden. And, you know, it was that, that sort of characterization of marriage. And so I think it's not surprising that um, the kids that grew up in that kind of media environment now take a very sort of jaundiced view of marriage. They're not interested in marriage. They're not interested in having families. They're not interested in having children. And I, I think you look at cause and effect, and I think, you know, you cannot underestimate how influential popular culture and, and the media is in, in shaping people's worldview. And I, I think those chickens are coming home to roost now. You know, Melissa, I think you're right, because think about the, I mean, when I was growing up, and some of this is from before I was growing up, but It's a Wonderful Life as a movie that had a very devoted husband and wife and, and a man who, who gave up much for his community and for his family, uh, or my three sons, you know, uh, Fred McMurray, or even, even goodness knows, Leave it to Beaver and, and shows like that, that you're right. If you soak kids in that kind of popular culture, are you going to be surprised when they come out with a tinge of the color you soak them in? Right. And what was fascinating is, and I quoted in this, um, this piece for Town Hall, um, a young woman who was interviewed by BuzzFeed News, and she was talking about how um, the programs that she watched when she was young, a lot of them on HBO, programs like Girls and Sex in the City, um, informed her behavior when she became a young woman. And she thought that, you know, promiscuous sexuality was the, the key to a happy life. And she found it very empty and not only empty, but many, many instances, very dangerous. Yeah. And in fact, uh, I'm, my wife watched Sex and the City for a time and she got to get tired of it because it's like this is a, a young lady who's who's depicted the, the you know, the lead in the show was depicted as a young lady who just bounced from relationship to relationship to relationship but overall had great friends, had great times and all that. And, uh, and, and maybe was, you know, given to angst from time to time, but overall generally okay. Uh, and, and it just, it, it seems like a very hollow life. Yeah. yeah. 
And that's what this girl said was um, she she felt like HBO really did a number on her. And I think those were her words. It did did a number on me because um, it really um, jaundiced her view of of sex and dating and marriage and relationships. And she thought that promiscuous sexuality was the key to happiness. And she ultimately found it very unfulfilling. Um, And so I think it's unsurprising now that so many young people um, have this sort of attitude and dating and relationships and aren't interested in starting family because TV has told them, well, you know, you can have your fun. You don't need to settle down. You don't need to commit. You don't need to be in a monogamous relationship. Just, you know, just you do you. And, and um, I think we're going to, we're going to, we're going to see more unhappiness, more discontent, more anxiety, more depression as, as people go through their lives and find that, that it's really unfulfilling. By the way, Melissa, if you don't mind, I'm going to drop in this notice about an unhappy relationship. The GOP-led House of Representatives has just impeached Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. They've been fighting for a long time. I could see the end on that one coming, although he gets to stay till the Senate decides not to vote on that. But it sounds like the Republicans have decided to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas and who could deserve it more than he does? I had to throw that into the middle of that. Are there any examples that you can give my audience? So we give them all the bad stuff that's happening, movies and TV and streaming and all that, that depict uh, these loveless relationships uh, or promiscuous sex. Is there anything good out there on the, on the scene that you could recommend? Well, I have to say, I have been very much enjoying watching All Creatures Great and Small, which is this is a BBC production that's airing on PBS in the United States. Um, but it's based on, if you're at all familiar with the books that came out in the 70s uh, by James Harriet. Um, so it's about a country vet living in the Yorkshire Dales um, in the years leading up to and, and overlapping the early years of World War II. Um, but this is a, a program that really does celebrate life and it celebrates um, marriage and it celebrates, you know, his relationship with Helen and and despair at having to leave his, you know, young family to go fight in the war and, and um, all that she does to protect the life of her unborn infant. You know, there's a, an episode where they're worried that she may have been exposed to a bacteria that might, might kill the baby. And um, later on, she, she gets kicked by a calf and she's worried that she might lose the baby. And so it's a very life-affirming um, marriage affirming uh, series. So I, I, I love it and I've enjoyed it thoroughly. I got I got to tell you my my wife's favorite show as as a kid was uh was a Little House on the Prairie, right? And uh Michael right. Landon and 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 she called it the glad sad glad show. Always started out glad, yeah. went went to a point of sad, <laughs> but always ended up glad at the end. But a solid marriage in tough circumstances, right? And kids who respected right. their parents. Could Hollywood or other producers of of entertainment be persuaded that this would sell because I think their their appetite for money might be greater than their appetite for just making stuff that affirms their own values as sick as they might be. <laughs> Do you think maybe we can persuade? Hey, there's money to be made here. There's an audience that's hungry for this. Do the surveys show Ab- any of that? Absolutely, there is. Yeah, I. You know what's interesting is there was a, a recent study out of UCLA um, where they talked to teenagers. And teenagers are saying that they want to see less sex in in the media that is presented to them. Um, so I think that's an encouraging sign because they want to see more um, 
more organic relationships, relationships that develop naturally and not just rushing into bed with uh, each other. And I think that's an encouraging sign. But I think you're absolutely right that there is a huge underserved market out there that are looking for these positive stories. Um, and, um, you know, Angel Studios, I think, has latched onto that idea, and they've Love been producing some, some great content. Yeah. Um, Vent Key is a new offering from Daily Wire that's offering some great, wholesome, family-friendly content, mostly for younger audiences, not so much for teens and older, but... but um, but there are some good options out there, so don't give up and keep looking and, and vote with your dollar is what I would encourage folks to do. You know, put your well, money where your mouth is. <laughs> and, and just make it so that when you get it, it's not sappy and unrealistic and all the rest of that. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you one for, for younger kids. Uh, I've liked uh, Bluey. Uh, my granddaughter said, hey, I want to watch this a couple of years ago. And I like the show. I was, in, I even wrote to the folks in Australia and I said, hey, this is a great show. You managed to do nice stuff about a real family that has real, well, it's a family of blue healers, but it's a, it's a, it's a nice family, but it didn't get saccharine sweet or any of the rest of that. They managed to convey some, you know, some, some real uh, lessons without being overly preachy. And if they could do that for adults, and, and, and portray people as just real people, that'd be fantastic. Melissa, thank you so very much. That's Melissa Hansen, Vice President of the Parents Television and Media Council. I'll get to your phone calls and emails in just a moment. It's the best conversation in talk journalism. It's the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Right arm, right leg. The upcoming American elections promise some provocative politics, but be forewarned, the green agenda may lead to some extreme rhetoric. I get pupper! So prepare yourself by listening to The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, the word has come from Capitol Hill that the House of Representatives has voted. All Republicans voting in the majority, three Republicans voting with the Democrats, but voting at the end of the evening to impeach Alejandro Mayorkas, uh, who is the Homeland Security Secretary, and he richly deserves it, in my view. He has left our border wide open to an invasion. He has lied to the United States Congress. He has abused and I think violated U.S. law, and he deserves to be impeached. He is, in fact, the first cabinet secretary to be impeached since 1876, and that was uh, William Belknap, who was Secretary of War. And it'll be interesting to see what happens if and when this gets to the Senate. Impeachment is, in effect, the indictment of the individual for the high crimes and misdemeanors he's committed. Now the Senate can hold a trial, or the Democrats can decide, we'd rather not, which I think is the coward's way out. So being the coward's way out, probably the direction that Democrats will go. Glad to have you with me on a Tuesday evening. If you want to join what we call the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, you go right to the head of the line at 866 439 
888-528-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com and vote in our daily question on X, the X poll at Lars Larson Show. And Joy is a naysayer. Joy, what do you and I disagree about that makes you a naysayer? Well, I think the discussion you had with the gentleman who just wrote the book was, I think, well, from my standpoint, you're... Um, language describing the issues was a barricade to having a discussion with someone who had an opposite opinion. Well, except and, his point His point is we're too polarized, and I get that. But tell me right, this. I, I tried to think of things that we are polarized on. One of them is Ukraine. One of them is abortion. I can, one of them is the border. Can you pick one of those and and tell me, how would you, how did I describe it in a way that I, I guess you're saying is, was pejorative or somehow would bias the conversation? Because if we're talking about abortion, we're talking about either killing babies or not killing babies. If we're talking about supporting Ukraine, it's either send the bombs and the bullets and the bucks or don't. If we're talking about the border, it's either we enforce our, our laws and we guard our border or we open up to an invasion. Is there some kind of halfway point? By, by using different language. Well, I don't know if I would say a halfway point, but I think that there's a better way to get at trying to solve the problem. So as a Democrat who supports... Um, uh, You're a Democrat? What a, what a shocker. I'm so I know, surprised. I know. I know. It's a shock. Um, but then so was my dad, who was in the service for almost 30 years, and my mom, who came from a very conservative family in Missouri... And they shouldn't have remained as Democrats with their kind of how they and the factors that they grew up in were adults in, but they did. So I was very influenced. Okay, but Joy, we're getting we're getting anyway, a far so, afield. What, yes. what what's, okay, so how what's how would, how should I change my language? Pick any one for, of the three: Ukraine, the border, so or abortion. For well, I would do it as defining the problem. So for me. Even though I believe in a woman's choice, I also would have a goal of reducing the number of abortions. I don't think most Democrats are abortion happy. If they could reduce them, then we would all do that. And so then your discussion could could be around, um, well, let's set um, a number of weeks for viability. Um, let us look at the foster care system is awful. There's a, a lot of the homeless youth are from the foster system. So I think that's a different problem. Improve. Joy, can I tell you why no, I think that's no, a different problem? No, because if you're saying adoption. Yes, but, adoption. but hold on, hold on, Joy. There is a difference. There is incredible demand for adoptable babies. 14-year-olds with problems. Uh, is is a much tougher uh, nut to crack, and many of them do not come about because of abortion or lack of abortion. They're they're in baby. Maybe they're the bad element. Maybe their family has done poorly by them or badly but by I them. Think, I'd agree with you. But but I think part of the problem and one of the issues that you would have on the women's choice side is that it may be, let's say, a woman gets impregnated by an abusive spouse or boyfriend, then her fear of what kind of family 
the child would be raised in would be one of the things that might motivate her to look at abortion. But if they, if there were... Oh, hold on. Can I ask you a question place, then? Why would, if a woman is in an abusive relationship that she recognizes, this guy is abusing me, that's bad for her, that's bad for the baby, why not mom and baby pick up and leave the abusive relationship? Well, you know... You're saying killing the baby is the answer, and no, I don't, I don't not, agree with it. Not, well, not being in an abusive one, it... I have talked to enough women who stayed in them for different and that reasons. Is, it's, a, it's a bad choice. Were, it's a bad choice, but, but it's a I choice. Just, I, Should the but, baby be killed for that reason? But what I'm saying is that if they're like on the border, I don't support an open border, but we have very different ideas about um, 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 how the immigration problem should be solved. But if you talk hold, about... Hold on. How do you know we have different... I, I, have a, I have a very simple approach. Enforce the law. If you say, but, but we want to let more... Hold on. If we want to let more people in, go to the U.S. Congress and change the law. Increase the number of legal people who are allowed to emigrate. But enforce the law. My ideas are very simple, and they're very straightforward, and they're in but, keeping but, with the Constitution. But the language that's used turns it to an emotional level right away. How? And it cuts off. How? Because, no, tell me, tell me how. When you talk about, okay, I've moved to California. I look at my street being repaired. I look at my lawn being done. It is hard, hard working Mexicans for the most part. I don't know if they're legal or illegal. Yeah, I was there just going to say you're being a bit of a bigot if you assume that brown skin means you're illegally here. But no, I would expect no, as a Democrat. No, but there may be some of both. And so, but, so there's a demand for folks who will do this kind of work because the average American... I think that's hogwash. It's, it's hogwash, and here's why, Joy. In the trades, and the trades is desperately short of people as an example. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, work as carpenters, plumbers, electricians, HVAC, right. every, and they are all very well-paid professions that pay anywhere from 60000 to to $100,000 a year. And you're going to try and persuade me, oh, we don't have enough Americans who want to work as a carpenter at seventy or $80,000 a year no, I'm or an electrician. About, I'm talking about people digging ditches and people who we are doing We dig ditches with machines for the most part these days. Now, there are well, dirty not, jobs out there, but, I, Joy, but, but, I'm but you're not telling me how the, the language needs to like, change. Let's say, let's say if... if, if <laughs> I start out by wanting to talk about immigration and how do we solve this problem? Too many people are coming in. How do we set up an asylum? Enforce the law. I, okay, but if I say, well, Lars, the only thing you want to do is because you're such a racist, there stops the conversation. If you tell me, oh, yeah, but, you know, these people are invading. No, but I'm not, I'm not calling anybody racist. I want, I want the law enforced on everybody of every color and every ethnicity. Enjoy. You're a great naysayer. Thanks for the call. When you wake up, bring it. Uh. 
Konstantin Kissin on Hamas. For years now, many of us have been warning that the barbarians are at the gates. We were wrong. They're inside. There are positives as well. I mean, say what you want about Hamas supporters. At least they know what a woman is. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'll get back to your calls shortly, but I want to talk about this for a moment. Crime is so bad in Washington, D.C., that the U.S. Justice Department has had to send federal resources to address the situation in the city of Washington, D.C. And to talk about that, I've invited Zach Smith on. He's a legal fellow with the Heritage Foundation and co-author with our friend Cully Stimson of the new book called Rogue Prosecutors, How Radical Soros Lawyers Are Destroying America's Communities. Zach, welcome back. Well, thank you so much for having me on, Mars. Good to be so, with you. So it's nice to have you. So is it is it the case that Washington, D.C. has become like some third world jungle nation somewhere that Americans send, send federal authorities in to try to help the country bring things back under control, except this is in the District of Columbia? Yeah, look, the crime crisis in Washington, D.C. needs to be laid squarely at the feet of the local elected politicians who have moved to defund the police, who have moved to demoralize the police. And it needs to be laid at the feet of the Biden Justice Department under Merrick Garland, the attorney general, and under Matthew Graves, the U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia. Now, here's the thing, Lars, because D.C. is our nation's capital, it has a unique status. The U.S. attorney in the District of Columbia essentially functions as the local D.A., and unfortunately, Matt Graves, as the local D.A., has utterly failed at his job. Uh, just over the past years, homicides are up, robberies are up, carjackings are absolutely through the roof. And that's because he's refusing to do his job and prosecute criminals in our nation's capital. And he's doing it for political reasons, right? I mean, is, is it possible to say this isn't practical? It's not shortage of dollars or men or women in uniform. It's 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 for political reasons that he's not prosecuting, right? Well, I'll give you a shocking statistic, Lars. Uh, since Matthew Graves became the U.S. attorney last year, his office declined to prosecute 67 percent of the cases the Metropolitan Police Department presented to it. He refused to prosecute two thirds of the cases that the local police department brought to him. And so certainly uh, if this isn't being done for an ideological reason, uh, he's just incompetent at his job. Maybe it's both. Uh, but unfortunately, it's the citizens of D.C., the people who live there, the people who work there, foreign dignitaries who come to our country to conduct business on behalf of their own countries are being victimized. Members of Congress are being carjacked, and it's utterly shameful, and Biden DOJ should be absolutely ashamed that they have allowed things to get so, so bad. See, I have to believe that it's by design, because uh, am I right in assuming that Matthew Graves, since he's functioning as effectively the local DA for a population of what, about 5 million people? Is it, is it 5 million in the metro, probably fewer than that in the mm -hmm. actual district? Or is That's the right. district yeah. that big? Well, look, is the district is... If you're comparing the district to a state, it's a very small state. And it's right. you know, a, a relatively large uh, city. But, you know, I know when we've talked before, Lars, we've talked about rogue prosecutors, uh, places yep. like Philadelphia, San Francisco. This is very much in the same vein. Now, Matthew Graves hasn't explicitly adopted uh, that language. But if you look at his policies of never charging juvenile offenders, releasing many violent offenders, back into the community uh, without bail, even when they're facing very serious charges. 
you know, many of his policies line up with that. And his policies have either the tacit or explicit approval of the Biden Justice Department, of Merrick Garland. And again, you know, this is, uh, you know, look at the results for yourselves and see what's happening in the District of Columbia uh, to see the consequences. Well, the reason I the reason I made the point about him, it's not him alone. He has a bunch of effectively ADAs under him. And I have to imagine that if they were prosecuting cases before Graves' arrival, and then he comes in and says, okay, I'm, I'm the new sheriff in town, that the rest of his bureaucracy under him would have kept processing all these crimes in the way they usually did, unless they were told otherwise. Am I right in assuming that? Well, I think you have to look at who's being hired, too, Lars. You know, if you look at the yeah. typical resume of someone in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, it is not the resume of a typical prosecutor. Uh, many of his assistants tend to be left-leaning, unfortunately. And I'll give you another example of how this plays out in practice. One of the most effective statutes for pushing back against violent crime is something called 922G, felon in possession. If you take it to federal court, uh, they're going to get very stiff, mandatory minimum sentences. It's an effective tool that federal prosecutors around the country use every day. Matthew Graves is refusing to let his assistants take those cases to federal court. Yep. They take most of them to local court. The offenders get a slap on the wrist and are back out in the community victimizing people, uh, again, in very short order. See, and that's the mechanism I'm thinking about, because if he had come in, and I assume that his ADAs, if they were used to doing this and they weren't the new hires with the different political bent, they'd have said, hey, boss, I got a bunch of these. I'm going to take them over to federal court, that they would have been told by him, no, we're doing things differently. Take it to Muni court or, you know, to the other courts, the lower courts, and uh, we'll just we'll let them be, uh, you know, released with no consequence. Uh, that that's the mechanism that's that's telling the criminal population, uh, go ahead, commit the crimes. Nothing much is going to happen. Right. Well, that's exactly right. The other aspect of this as well, Lars, is that juvenile offenders are committing very violent crimes in D.C. and around the country. They're many, primarily responsible for many of the carjackings that are happening. Many of the shootings are being committed by very young individuals. And part of the problem is that Matthew Graves and his counterpart, the D.C. Attorney General, have both agreed not to charge juvenile offenders as adults. And so this has had a very perverse incentive. You see gangs going out recruiting very young kids to do very violent crimes because they know they'll get a slap on the wrist, probably won't even spend much, if any, time behind bars, even for shooting someone or robbing them. Uh, whereas if someone older did that same thing, they theoretically uh, could be facing decades in prison. So so is this fix where the DOJ says we're going to surge in additional law enforcement tools and resources? Is this going to bail out graves? In other words, another part of the Biden administration is going to bail out the failing this failing part of what is effectively the, the Biden administration, the U.S. attorney for D.C.? At best, it's a Band-Aid. At worst, it's just window dressing. Because, look, you can surge additional prosecutors, additional resources to the office. But if the policies remain the same of pleading out cases, of not charging the most serious provable offense, of not holding people accountable when they commit violent crimes, well, unfortunately, you're going to get the same results no matter how much money, how many resources you throw at the problem. Yeah, you'll just process them a little bit faster. Zach, congrats on the book that you and Cully wrote, uh, Rogue Prosecutors, How Radical Soros Lawyers Are Destroying America's Communities. We always appreciate you coming on and giving us some insight into the District of Columbia and its latest problems. <laughs> 
Well, happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. You betcha. Back in a moment. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Yes, you can check out our Instagram feed, and there you'll find that I have a face for radio, but it works for me. You can also tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. People say our country is... Okay, it's a nice ride. It's going to happen. Stand by playback. I know. Lars. Real Red Meat Radio. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Never apologize for being patriotic. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. My memory is so bad I let you speak. Lars Larson. I've had enough of what they call shrinkflation. It's a ripoff. It's a ripoff, declares Joe Biden. He's confused, but he managed to put together a video, and that was displayed on Super Bowl Sunday. So what was he saying? He says he's concerned because he thinks Americans are being ripped off, and he's going to go to their defense. I want to point out a gigantic piece of hypocrisy from Joe Biden, who heads up the government, the federal government, the executive branch anyway, of the United States of America. And let me get into that in just a moment. First, welcome to the best conversation in talk journalism. It's right here every day. And if you want to join in, it's easy to do. 866-HEY-LARS. And if you happen to be a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. You can send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. We put up a brand new question on X every day. Uh, should some American cities set the minimum wage at, wait for it, $50 an hour as some Democrats are now proposing? I'm not kidding. We've got somebody running for the United States Senate in the state of California, uh, Barbara Lee, Representative Barbara Lee. She is in the House of Representatives now. She'd like to be in the U.S. Senate. And I tell you from time to time that I think the Democrats are just bug house crazy. But this seems to be some good evidence of that. She has actually stood up in a debate in which she's competing with three other Democrats for, for the U.S. Senate seat from California. They're proposing anywhere from 25 to $50 an hour, which translates to over $100,000 a year. That's what minimum wage would be if uh, soon-to-be or possibly-be U.S. Senator Barbara Lee has her way. She wants minimum wage jobs to pay $100,000 an hour. Now, I think that's absolute lunacy. She was asked specifically, but how is this going to be handled by small business people? And she gave a nonsense answer. And then, of course, the TV talking head who was involved in the debate just went on to the next question of a different candidate on a different subject. I mean, there was all kinds of ground to be gained there because Barbara Lee said, well, I used to run a small business. I wish the interviewer in this debate had actually said, well, if you were running your business today and tell us what it was, how would that have worked out? Let's say you're running a, a, a small business that depends on minimum wage workers, like fast food operations. Although in many bigger cities, they couldn't begin to pay as low as the state minimum wage, 
which might be $15, $16, $17 an hour, because if they paid that much, they wouldn't get any workers at all. Now, I'm sure at $100,000 a year in salary, you'd probably get all the minimum wage burger flippers that you want. But the problem is, what would your hamburgers cost if the labor that makes up one-third of the cost of the average fast food or restaurant operation, if you were paying cooks more than that, but if you're paying the busboys $100,000 a year, how much would you have to charge for a meal to actually make any kind of profit? I mean, there are Democrats out there who seem just absolutely wedded to the idea that all you have to do is tell businesses to do something, and they'll do it no matter how much it costs, no matter what it does to their business. So should some American cities set the minimum wage at $50 an hour, as some Democrats are now proposing? I'd answer that one, no. I'd love to hear the naysayer who goes out on the other side of that one. You can find the poll on X at Lars Larson Show. You can also find it on our website at LarsLarson.com. Now, yesterday, I asked you the question, the White House has banned the use of TikTok by its employees and federal government employees and yet Joe Biden's political campaign is using TikTok, which is a Chinese communist spy app. And should he be? And my answer to that was no. 90% of you said no. But a full 10% of you said, yeah, Joe should be on TikTok. Ban it for the rest of the government. But his campaign can use it all day long. But I want to get into this thing that Joe Biden is trying now. Because his attempt to run for re-election on the idea that Bidenomics is going great with groceries up about 26%, with gasoline prices up more than 30%, with mortgage rates up 100%, with all those things going on, Joe Biden tried to go out and convince Americans that Bidenomics was working out famously for Americans. Well, it may be working out for the Biden crime family, not so well for everybody else, because the average paycheck up there is still lagging by a couple of percentage points behind the increase in prices. So whatever you were making three years ago in real dollars today is less than it was three years ago. Not only have you not seen an increase in spendable income, you've actually seen a drop. So Joe Biden has decided to re-triangulate and try a different approach, and he's calling it shrinkflation. Listen to this. If you're anything like me, you like to be surrounded by a snack or two while watching the big game. You know, when buying snacks for the game, you might have noticed one thing. Sports drinks bottles are smaller. The bag of chips has fewer chips, but they're still charging it just as much. Now, that's his complaint. They made the package smaller, they made the content smaller, but they're paying or they're charging just as much. We all understand that different companies are going to offer different products in different size packages. Those are going to change all the time. The price will change as well. I know that there are companies out there, because I'm not a marketing expert, but I know that there are companies saying, we want to charge less than $1 for our candy bar. If we can't make a, a candy bar of, say, 10 ounces for that amount of money and sell it at a profit, we'll make the candy bar a little bit smaller. We'll keep the snack at $1 because they know that some consumers are going to buy based on the price. They aren't necessarily going to buy by, based on the rate, uh, the, the weight of that product, but they know what's going on. But let me point something out to you that Joe Biden manages to ab absolutely commit a gigantic hypocrisy. Do you know what else has been shrinking badly, but now costs either the same or a lot more money? That would be government, not just government at the federal level, government at the state level, government at the county level, government at the city level, at every single level of government right now. Americans are paying more and getting less. Now, you don't put the Pentagon or the United States military in a potato chip bag. But if you imagined it that way, consider this. 
We are paying more for our military and our national defense, and we are getting less. And if you don't believe me, ask anybody who's recruiting for the United States military. No matter which branch of the service, I guess Space Force is doing okay. But Air Force, Army, Marines, Navy, the whole... Ma the, these people are people we're very proud of, but the problem is we're paying more and we're getting less in the way of national defense. Then consider this. Are you paying the same or more taxes than you were three years ago? When you call 911, is the wait time to get emergency help, is it longer or shorter? In almost every place in America, you wait a lot longer. You may actually wait for hours you will certainly wait for a lot more than before. And what's the response time? You're paying for those police services as well. And yet, is response time up or down in the last three years? In almost every American city, you wait a whole lot longer. In many cases, you wait long enough that uh, bad things happen. People die. And then consider schools. Are your school taxes any lower today than they were three years ago? Are your kids or the kids in your community learning better than they were three years ago? Or are they learning less than they were three years ago? So at every single level, governments, not just Joe Biden's federal government, are charging more, delivering less. And Joe Biden has the temerity to complain about soda pop and potato chips? you got to be kidding me. Come on, man. Do you? All of it began the first time some of you who know better and are old enough to know better let young people think that they had the right to choose the laws they would obey as long as they were doing it in the name of social protest. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and emails. Have you noticed that there have been attacks on police for the last several years that have ramped up from what I guess we could consider a normal level to something that's very abnormal of course, I guess it, it depends on what you use as your benchmark for normal. But in the last year, I mean, this last year, 32 law enforcement officers have been shot out so far this year. Attacks on New York police officers caught on video. We talked about the four illegal aliens who beat two police officers down to the pavement. Um, those four were arrested fairly promptly, uh, booked into custody, and then just about as promptly released from custody, whereupon they hopped on a bus and headed for California, we're told. I thought we'd talk about it with Lance LaRusso, who's founder of the Blue Line Lawyer Institute, former cop and the author of the books When Cops Kill and Blue News. Lance, welcome back. Thanks for having me. How much worse has the problem of attacks on law enforcement become in the last couple of years? In the past several years, it's increased not only in the number, which is what a lot of people, you know, counting those numbers have noticed an increase, but the intensity has gotten worse. So you look at the attacks on the two NYPD officers that you mentioned, you have people not shoving an officer, not even punching them, but while an officer is down and their back is exposed, kicking them in the head, kicking them in the neck. I mean, those are injuries, that, those are assaults that could lead to life-threatening, life-altering injuries. 
and the acuity of these has gone up. In 2018, we saw a multiple-fold increase in the number of vehicular assaults, so somebody using a vehicle as a weapon. In the prior year before, it was about two, and then in one year, it jumped to nine. So it's not just the number of assaults, it's the degree of the assault to the um, extent that it's capability of causing serious injury. In fact, one that comes to mind, and in fact, we haven't run the soundbite from it, but there's a sheriff down in Florida, and I'm trying to remember the name of the county, but he had a deputy who went on a stop, and uh, I think it was a young lady, and she hops out of her car. It's an urgent situation, and uh, and the suspect jumps in the car, I believe it was a woman, and takes the police patrol car and speeds off with it, ends, ends up ending her life, but ending the lives of two other individuals as well. So it's a problem uh, in that the violence aimed at officers or violations of law aimed at officers can end up taking civilian lives as well. Is there anything that you think explains why this is happening and why now? I mean, I think it's a lack of accountability. You know, when you look at the people who commit crimes, people who commit violent crimes in any given society, and I don't mean society as a whole, just take a microcosm in a specific city, a specific state, you find over and over again repeat violent offenders being let out of prison are responsible for, or being out on bond, are responsible for a great deal of violent crime. So the notion that we're going to eliminate cash bail instead of doing bail reform because people believe that in some situations it was disadvantaging people, going the other way and saying no matter what crime you commit, we're going to let you out without any bail whatsoever, has failed. And it is making the streets far more dangerous. And you have criminals, and I don't mean individuals walking the street. I mean people who have proven themselves to be criminals because of their intentional action over time to commit multiple felonies, they will not stop until they are either removed from society or they get to a situation where they recognize they're out on bond if they commit another crime, then they're not going to be let out the next time they're arrested. Because the system is sending them the message, you can get away with this. That young lady that I mentioned who stole the deputy's patrol car and then ended up ending her life and the lives of two innocent people that she hit, I think it was a couple in their 70s who she plowed into with the patrol car. Um, but when the sheriff held up a giant computer printout, he said, look, this is her, her list of priors. And it included convictions, felony convictions, misdemeanor convictions, and everything else. Well, she's dead now. But, but... In that case, you had somebody who seemed to have committed enough crimes, at least for lay people out here, to say, well, why wasn't she locked up for good? And you gave the answer. It's both state lawmakers and the people running the uh, system, meaning the jails, the sheriffs to some extent, the police chiefs, the courts, etc., that are just turning these people loose time and again. And then the other problem you have is as people who are younger are growing up and watching this, they're essentially learning that there is no consequence for crime. You know, you see these massive shoplifting and retail theft rings. When you don't prosecute the individuals, not only who are stealing, but also the people who are organizing it, you are sending a message that there is no consequence for crime. And if people realize there's no consequence for crime and they are bent on committing crimes, they will keep committing more of it. And when law enforcement attempts to take them into custody, they will lash out violently. That's what we're seeing.
I'm talking to Lance LaRusso, who's written two books, When Cops Kill and Blue News. The proceeds from those books go to police charities. He's also the founder of the Blue Line Lawyer Institute. And yet, are you seeing any sign, Lance, that state lawmakers or Congress is seeing these things happen as a result of easing up on criminals and no cash bail and all those other policies? Are any of them seeing it and saying, well, we have to change this and then actually doing it? Because I, I don't see much action at all. Well, the difference you brought up, the dichotomy is seeing it and even saying something's wrong and then doing something to fix it is is the divide. We have some people that are raising cane and saying, hey, this has got to stop. It's not sustainable. And a lot of times we're seeing the financial impact. You're seeing uh, big box stores, even, you know, pharmacies moving out of communities. Well, I don't know where people go to get their, their prescriptions. But typically what you have, instead of using those horrible words, I was wrong, and we talk about this in Blue News, you have to tell your own story. Instead of saying we were wrong, our policy has failed, our no-cash bail has failed because people who assaulted two officers in New York City are now on the lam, we're going to blame some other societal event. We're going to blame the way the officers handled the situation, or we're going to blame the officers didn't properly de-escalate the situation. Because instead of saying, you know, uh, there are some pretty bad people out here and we probably need to remove them from the street and the police were right, some people would rather choke themselves to actually admit that. So they're going to do that, and then at the same time, they're going to tell individual officers, by the way, all these other mechanisms you have for controlling people or trying to bring them into control, put them in a car, put them in handcuffs, etc., are being taken away from the officers, Right. Yeah, and it's really interesting. People talk about the uh, the taser and pepper spray and these other methods. They were developed by law enforcement over the past 40 and 50 years to try to find some sort of bridge between actually putting your hands on someone to arrest them and using deadly force. And what we've seen is people who have no idea of what it's like to arrest someone, no idea of what it's like to try to convince someone to comply when they're high on drugs or they're drunk or both or they're going through some sort of a mental health crisis where they, the officers have been called because the person's violent or they're injuring someone, that these are not easy situations. And we keep calling law enforcement officers sometimes to deal with situations that are not only impossible, they're unwinnable. And what do you do at that point? Because I, I told my audience last week about a man who finally got so frustrated uh, at the inaction when his daughter had been sexually assaulted, then he went out and killed the guy. And and then he stuck around and told uh, told law enforcement, yep, I shot him. And I said, I hope that guy stands in front of a jury. And I hope the jury has to consider, what do you do with somebody? And you say, well, that's vigilantism. That's taking the law into your own hands. And I made the case that, well, if the police have had their hands tied and the courts won't lock people up and the system won't indict, won't prosecute, won't confine, uh, what's what? What are you leaving the citizens with as an alternative? And if you say, well, it should be a last resort, sounds like we may have arrived at last resort. That is Lance LaRusso from the Blue Line Lawyer Institute. Uh, Lance, it's a pleasure as always. If you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line. If you want to send an email instead, talk at LarsLarson.com. And, of course, you can always vote in our poll on X. Uh, used to be called Twitter. Now it's the X. So uh, we're calling it the poll on X. 
In any case, the question is there every day at Lars Larson Show. You can also find it on my website at LarsLarson.com. We'll get to your phone calls and emails coming up. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Honestly provocative talk for America. The Lars Larson Show. This is the story of a very... Elon Musk sums up America's government. And what I see all over the place is people who care about looking good while doing evil. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I always share numbers with you from ICE and from Customs and Border Protection about to try to give you a sense of what's going on at the southern border. And the numbers, as I understand them, over the last three years during the Biden administration, 8.5 million direct encounters between illegal aliens crossing our border and uh, Customs and Border Protection. Then another 1.7 million estimated gotaways, and then an unknown number who were neither directly encountered by CBP or uh, were gotaways, in other words, spotted by Customs and Border Protection, but not actually approached or apprehended. There's some other number. Now, how big is that? I don't know. But it turns out that it looks like the Biden administration has been forcing ICE to hide information from the public. And I thought we'd talk about that with Matt O'Brien, who's director of investigations for IRLI, that's the Immigration Reform Law Institute, and a former immigration judge. Your Honor, welcome back. Thank you very much. I want to ask you about this. Have they been hiding information? Yeah, not only have they been hiding the numbers of people who have been released into the interior of the United States, uh, but now they're trying to hide the identities of the few people that ICE is arresting. Um, we did a study and we found that under the Trump administration, 95% of press releases contained basic information about uh, the individuals that ICE is arresting. And the 3% where they didn't were situations where ICE couldn't verify the identity. Uh, the Biden administration is only naming 67% of the criminal aliens who they are arresting. And almost all of that 67% is in situations where the press or a local police department has already named the aliens. So they're trying to hide criminal aliens and keep them in the United States. And, you know, one of the concerns I've had, uh, Judge O'Brien, is this, that the system that's been described publicly for how these people get shipped around the country, especially if they're flying, well, yeah, if they're getting on an airplane, early on a lot of us said, well, how are they getting on airplanes without picture ID? And they say, well, they're using the document that the CBP wrote them, basically a ticket that they got that says you came in illegally, Here's a date somewhere in the future, maybe six, seven, even as much as 10 years from now, you're to show up in court. And then, as I understand it, at Tucson in particular, when the illegals show up in the special line that's designated only for them and off limits to regular American citizens who are second class, and they're asked, what is your name? They say, well, my name is this and my date of birth is this. Well, the problem with that is, Judge O'Brien, is that I've talked to people who've been down on the border doing independent work, and they say you find thousands of pieces of picture ID that are thrown away by people about to cross into America illegally. And and uh, obviously the next question is, why would somebody throw away their picture ID? 
because it's from Cuba or it's from another country and they don't want to be identified as being from there. They know the magic word is you've got to say I'm from, you know, Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm running from uh, pro- persecution and I'm seeking asylum. And they can't afford to be identified as coming from somewhere else. So whatever name they give to Border Patrol and date of birth and everything else gets put in the system. And at Tucson, they look at this illegal who wants to get on a, an airplane with a taxpayer-funded ticket and without picture ID, and they say, what's your name? And as long as he can repeat back the fake name he gave to Border Patrol and the fake DOB, they look in the system and say, yep, you're right here in the system, Joe Jones, born in Guatemala, date of birth, 1-1, you know, whatever. And, and, and we're allowing them to create fake records within our government's computers. Is that fair to say? Oh, it's 100% accurate, and, and it's beyond crazy. So we have the CBP-1 app, which basically is like global entry for illegal aliens. So these people give information that we have absolutely no way of verifying. They put it into this computer database that's basically Ali Mayorkas's personal system for registering all of these illegals. And then where you and I have to present a real ID document in order to get to the, the gate area of the airport, these folks are being allowed to use whatever bogus name they have put through CBP-1 and a notice to appear in immigration court as a document to board a flight. And there's no way to vet these people. And any sixth grader who is enterprising could go on Google and find a PDF document of the notice to appear and fake one. So, I mean, this is clearly the actions of an administration that is more interested in helping people violate U.S. immigration law than they are in protecting the public safety and national security interests of the American public. I'm talking to Judge Matt O'Brien, who's a former immigration judge and now with the Immigration Reform Law Institute. You mentioned something that may, may, may or may not resonate with my audience. You mentioned global entry. And do, I want people to realize how hard it is for an American citizen to get that. I don't go, you know, I don't go on long trips overseas very often. But a friend of mine was encouraging me to get that. And I said, okay, I've got a passport. I've already got the uh, real ID. I've got an enhanced driver's license. I've got all that stuff. I even had the TSA pre-check nonsense. And, uh, and I had all that. I said, I want to get global entry. They said, okay, you have to fill out a whole bunch of stuff online, provide your ID, send it in, and, and wait for a period of time, usually weeks or months, for them to come back and say, okay, we've cur- confirmed all of that. You can get your global entry as soon as you arrange an in-person interview. And I said, okay, I looked online for when was the next date. The next date within a 1,000 miles of where I live, you know, even if you were willing to hop on a plane and fly somewhere to get this done, was more than a year away. And that's what they make Americans go through to get what you just described. It basically is global entry. Oh, you're in the system? Okay, you go on through. But for citizens... You've got to sit for an in-person interview. You've got to provide a stack of documents. You've got to let them do a full background check on you and everything else for citizens to be treated that way. I mean, I, th- this is so it, sh- it ought to anger Americans that illegal aliens have become the first class citizens and Americans are now second class. It's absolute insanity. I just actually did global entry myself and I ran the National Security Division at 
uh, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services before I was an immigration judge. I was a trial attorney with ICE. I've held all kinds of crazy clearances. The government has so much information on me. When I buy a pair of socks on Amazon, something <laughs> pops on a screen somewhere. And yet I had to go through this ridiculous process in order to get a global entry card. And I, I'm sitting there doing this as I'm in the airport in Baltimore when I went for the interview. I'm literally seeing the signs for the illegal aliens to go into the special line with their notices to appear. And my wife, who is with me, who has also worked for Homeland Security, looked at this and went, oh, my God, what is going on here? How can this be happening? And yet it is. It's like we've fallen through the looking glass and, you know, we are in a Fellini movie about how to run an immigration system. It's absolute, complete, total insanity. It sounds like you even had to fly somewhere to get an interview, didn't you? I did. I, I'm based out of uh, out of uh, Northern Virginia, outside of Washington. That's where I live, and I had to drive uh, about an hour and fifteen minutes uh, to go to Baltimore oh, to get an interview because they were so backed up at the three sites around Washington where they do it, which are in the Dulles Airport, the Reagan Airport, and at the Reagan Building in downtown Washington. I think they were backed up, uh, you know, for two to three years at those locations. That was my experience as well. Matt, thanks for the work you do for IRLI, and thanks so much for the time today. Thank you. That is Judge Matt O'Brien, former immigration judge now with the Immigration Reform Law Institute. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. You can send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our poll on X. You'll find it at Lars Larson Show. Check out our Instagram feed and other social media. You can even tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. has welcomed naysayers for 27 years, but occasionally... Who is this person who speaks to me as though I needed his advice? This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I want you to think about this for a moment because producer Joel and I were just talking about this. There may not be another time. I can't remember another time. Neither one of us could. When the United States Congress has passed a bill, in this case it's passed through the Senate, to provide aid to Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. Now, it's probably doomed when it gets to the House of Representatives, but that aside, we can't remember a single time where they've actually put a poison pill inside the bill that says if we pass this for all this massive funding, at this point, $95 billion, that uh, if a future president, not the president who's president right now, but Donald Trump in January, if he decides that he's going to push back against that funding, even though he's the new president, and we will also have new members of both the House and the Senate, that they're not allowed to undo it. And this is one of those things that I don't think should ever happen. Uh, number one, when we're voting on aid to foreign countries, if we vote on aid to foreign countries at all, it ought to be a discreet up or down vote. 
on Ukraine, on Israel, on Taiwan, and there should be a straight up or down vote on the southern border of the United States. And now we're seeing more people entering illegally from Canada. So on the northern border as well, although the northern northern border problem pales by comparison to what is going on on our southern border. But literally, they put a poison pill inside this, and I'll describe how they're trying to make that happen. Because as long as I've been a reporter, I've had politicians tell me, well, we can fund it in this Congress, but we, or we can fund it in this legislature at the state level, but there's no guarantee that the next legislature will continue the funding for this program, nor is there a guarantee that the next president or the next governor, in, in whether it's federal or state, uh, is going to go along with this. There's no, there's almost no way, thank God, that any legislature or any Congress can say we are going to take on an obligation, we're going to agree to pay a lot of money, not just during this year and next year, but we're going to extend that promise into the future, and we're going to find a way to punish any American president or, in the case of state level, any governor who decides to work against it. But the Senate has passed the bill. It's a $95 billion foreign aid bill. It provides money for Ukraine, for Israel, for Taiwan, and they did all this. They voted 70 to 29. They did it early today. 22 Republican senators supported it, and that's despite the fact that candidate uh, President, jo uh, uh, President Donald Trump had urged these people to say, say no to this. Do not approve this kind of nonsense. There wasn't one penny that was paid for by having offsetting cuts in our almost $6 trillion national budget. Now, those are so-called pay-fors on Capitol Hill. They call it a pay-for. So if you walk in and say, I'd like $50 million for this program, they say, okay, find $50 million worth of stuff in the budget that you can convince your fellow senators and fellow reps that they're willing to cut out of the budget to pay for this additional spending. They didn't even try to find money to offset this additional foreign aid to Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. Now, there's something deeply wrong with that, especially when Republicans decide to stand up and support it. Listen, if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com, and you can vote in our poll on X. That has to do with this cockamamie idea from the Democrats that want a $50 minimum wage. Now, that's California. And it's Barbara Lee, for the most part, member of Congress and Democrat from California, who's running for the Senate. But she's actually standing up behind the idea of a $50 minimum wage, uh, probably applicable to big cities, not applicable elsewhere. She also says the federal minimum wage ought to be increased. Both of those are dumb ideas in my book. But if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here. And if you're a naysayer, we're going to put you right to the head of the line. So... Go back to this business about what has the Senate done. I mean, we just watched last week as the Senate passed a bill on our southern border, and it was a crazy bill. It basically gave the Democrats everything they wanted. They wanted to have 5,000 people a day come across the border illegally, and so, of course, it was dead on arrival in the House. And now we've got a foreign aid bill for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan that also appears to be dead on arrival. In fact, the uh, House Speaker, Mike Johnson, has already said this thing may not even be put on the floor of the House to have a debate or to have a vote on it. 
because he thinks there's a real problem there. And part of it is we're providing for the security of Israel and the security of Taiwan and the security of Ukraine on their borders and not providing anything to change the situation on America's borders. Now, if that makes sense to you, I, I know there are going to be people saying the Republicans are just being obstructionists. No, the Republicans are standing up for something sensible. Protect our own borders first. Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan come second if they come at all. So, glad to get your calls. 866-439-5277. Larry's on the line. Hey, Larry, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Why is the spending originated in the Senate? I thought the Constitution said they had to originate in the House. Uh, taxes in the, in the House. Just taxes. Not That's, not listen, don't call me a constitutional expert like Barack Hussein Obama. Uh, but I believe that you're thinking of taxes, uh, not spending. Spending bill, so they can originate the bill, then the House would have to pass it, then they'd have to work out any differences if they made changes to the bill in either House. And then, and then, but are you, can't, are you in favor of this? Hell, uh, Evans, no. <laughs> you can no, say it. Oh, no. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm amazed at things going on, and McConnell is, is just. He is. And and by the way, to put this in personal terms, Larry, since there is no money in the federal budget, since this budget of six trillion for the federal government is two trillion more than they're going to take in. So you've got four trillion coming in, six trillion going out. Imagine your household budget being that screwed up. Do you know by taking this extra ninety five billion dollars, it's more than a thousand dollars in new debt? for every single household in America. Yeah, I think the old Republican Party is dying. And I think the the senators that keep electing Mitch McConnell are Democrats. They've got to be. I think, you're, I think you're absolutely right. By the way, there is a clause in this bill, and I promise to tell you about that. Here's what would happen. There is a memo that shows that in the bill, the billions of dollars going to Ukraine, where Joe Biden and the Biden crime family have made so much money, uh, Donald Trump has said when he gets in January of next year that he's going to end the war in Ukraine in 24 hours. And actually, there are some other foreign heads of state who said he could probably get it done. But that would end funding for that. And if they pass the bill as it stands, it would threaten to impeach Donald Trump if he gets in the way of the money flow to Ukraine. What does that tell you about how our so-called representatives are doing business? The Lars Larson Show.